Hello, and welcome to the Women Who Code podcast. This show features conversations between diverse technology professionals discussing women in the industry, cutting-edge innovations, the future of work, deeply technical topics, and the ways that we can all work together to make the world a more inclusive place. We hope you enjoy, and if you do, please subscribe, rate, and comment. Hi, hello, I'm Nia Cortez from Women Who Could Monterey. I'm a network director and I'm also a UX designer by day. Today, we are here talking with Crystal Goat. Crystal Goat works at Shutterstock. She is a creative design cheerleader focused on building healthy teams and making cool stuff. Hi, Crystal. Hello, glad to be here. <laughs> so, first of all, we really thank you for being here. And we would like to start by asking you to tell us more about your career journey. Awesome. I think I was a designer probably before I can remember. I was an artist from like the age of two and had a real passion for it. I was encouraged in my early years to pursue that. I was lucky enough to have people around me that didn't discourage me being an artist or a designer. And in high school, I met I had a really amazing mentor teacher who laid a really amazing foundation for me to get into the design industry and exposed me to um, a more inclusive and diverse set of people in the industry around me in Seattle, where I grew up, that basically drove, drove my career choices in a lot of really positive ways. And I spent a lot of my early career kind of meandering through where I really wanted to be. I really wanted to focus on a lot of creative work. I started out in design when it was kind of like an everything designer. So I did visual design, branding, web design, front end dev work. Uh, the UX obviously <laughs> was part of that. And the research sometimes and the SEO and like, it was all over the place. So that essentially got me super burnout went back to school, got an oil painting degree. It's okay to go back to school later and do something fun if you want to, or something encouraging. And I um, went from there to an ad agency where I was exposed to many different kinds of clients, uh, large and small. I still was doing a lot of those wear your own hat things, um, but in a way that was helping a lot of small businesses, which I've always been passionate about. And when I had been contracting and free freelancing before, that um, I was often working in smaller groups and helping people get off the ground. So it was cool to be that, in that situation in a little bit of bigger area. And then I was lucky enough to come across a company called PicMonkey, who is a design and photo editing tool. From there, I essentially was working a dream job being a creative director at a creative software company. And we got acquired by Shutterstock in September of last year, which is super exciting. And uh, that's what got me here. Can you tell us more about your first days as a manager? How was that experience? Yeah, I can definitely tell you about my first days as a manager. I fell into management very early on in work where I was working at a like a computer tech company, like an Apple reseller. And I, I like managing people and encouraging people and getting them to do things. And it was one of those jobs where 
I was trying to do some design work, but I was also managing a store. Like when you're in your early career, don't be afraid to just do weird stuff or work at a coffee shop and work on the side. Um, And I really loved the idea that I could help and mentor people outside of myself the way that people had helped me. And so I was able to build a team at PicMonkey. Basically from the ground up, we had a really there was like two visual designers and like two X design UX designers at PicMonkey. And that allowed me to like expand and grow the agency that we worked with. Had, we had like interns and we had a cross team um, kind of managing different projects and client relations. But this was the first like big moment where I could expand in a, in a real way. I will never forget when I was promoted to creative director, I had been a design manager up until that point, And we had, a, we had a really great person in the creative director position for a few months who is now on my team. And he, he was struggling and we essentially flip-flop positions. He, he really needed to be in the IC space. And I, I, I like to lead and I like to manage and I like to think big and I like to look at data and strategy. And I, the day that the day that I am emotional about it, the day that I was promoted was such a big deal to me. I bit, I was very into Hamilton and there was the song, uh, I want to be in the room where it happens. And I played it all the time. And I constantly thought of that, especially at that point in Pick Monkey, there was a lot of male leads and there was a lot of they do a very good job of trying to be pretty inclusive, but it was a moment of opportunity for me to step up and show up. And when I got home, I like blasted it. I had a glass of champagne. Like it was such a moment for me. It was really cool. And I think we have to celebrate those moments. Now I manage a team at Shutterstock that is like very pretty nicely diverse. We're managing the design system. We're doing copywriting. We're doing some visual design, we're doing some project management and strategy and and really diving into some marketing materials. So it's a cool spot to be. Because um, you are now a senior design manager at Shutterstock, mm-hmm. but uh, something that uh, caught my attention when I got your information is that you describe yourself as a parenthesis cheer parenthesis leader. And so um, I was wondering, you can tell us more about uh, about this, about your leadership style, or maybe um, what do you do daily that makes you think that you're a cheerleader? Absolutely. It's one of my favorite things. I was, I was a cheerleader when I was like in second grade. And then in high school, I was a competitive cheerleader. And it taught me a lot of things about um, teamwork, lifting each other up. Uh, encouragement. I had really strong female leaders there as well around me and just a lot of strong women. And that really deeply ingrained this like better together mentality for me. And so in anywhere I've worked, I try to be very encouraging. I try to bring people together. Um, It's not a toxic positivity kind of thing. Like you have to be real about everything and and, um, play to win for sure. But I think, gosh, the saying, it's not catch a fly, you catch more flies with honey or whatever, but (laughs) it's essentially like, I feel like I've gotten better results out of people that I've worked with or teams that I've worked with or teams that I've managed or anything that I've run where, where it's a little bit more positive, a little bit more human and a little bit more 
rah, rah, let's do this together. <laughs> you know, and I bring up uh, about um, your, you being a manager and your management style, because um, I, I, I would like to share this uh, with you and everyone who's listening to this podcast. Um, it's according to the global consultant agency, Creative Equals, only 17% of creative directors are female. But unlike some other industries, the design area doesn't have a problem attracting women. Approximately 60% of junior designers are female. So this data would suggest an issue in retaining, promoting, and nurturing female designers. So what do you think we can do in this industry to improve this statistic? I think it's important. There's a number of things. I think it's important to look at the environment around you. If there's an employee resource group or something at your company where you can reach out to others, If there's something in your community or if you're networking through somewhere like Women Who Code, don't be afraid to reach out to other women. Don't be afraid to get on LinkedIn and reach out for mentorship or for advice. I've done that plenty myself where folks have reached out directly to me and it's a cup of coffee or it's something really simple. I think it's exciting to see partnerships like this uh, where Shutterstock is getting involved in networking mm -hmm. communities like that. But a lot of times you don't have that. There's been a lot of times I've worked in places where Um, it's either really small, there's one or two people, mm -hmm. or I was alone trying to contract or freelance or whatever, and just just getting out there and um, doing your best. Don't overwhelm yourself, but do your best to at least find some kind of connection in the, in the groups around you. And if you're lucky enough, like I am, to be a leader, I think it's really important to like mentor, shape, and encourage other more junior designers or more junior engineers or more junior anyone um, in any way you can. And there's a lot of ways you can do that. You can do it directly. You can, you can kind of plant seeds. We have a designer at Shutterstock right now that she felt a lack in mentorship and she created a mentorship program. And it was like a super cool thing that she did to show leadership. And it's been able to like get her to rise up. And she had people that encouraged her to do that. So if you're a leader, get that encouragement and make sure you're championing the people on your team. I think that's important. So I would like to talk also about your work at Shutterstock. Um, how do you think the role of designers in technology will change in the future? You know, with advances in artificial intelligence, all of this new technology that comes up almost every month, you know, based on your work, Um, in Shutterstock, the, the things that you're doing there? Absolutely. I think design is integral in any technological advance at any time, especially exciting in artificial intelligence. People are looking for predictive results for things. People are looking for better experiences, more human-centered design. And you need designers in tech to be able to get us to that point. It's not just about the code that goes behind it. It's about the full experience. It's about how it looks and feels and behaves and talks to you and what you can pull out of it. And it's a really exciting time to be doing that. And I think Shutterstock's digging into that technology in really cool ways. And, and the research and the planning of that that comes from a design perspective is just so important. So, you know, um, what are some of the lessons that you have learned during your career? that you think would be helpful for other women or people in general that are working in tech and design? 
A couple things come to mind. And one is to not be afraid to be yourself, show up as who you are. I think a lot of times, especially in my early career, I was so careful. And so like, it was so ingrained in me that I had to like behave some way or look some way or show up or dress for my job or whatever. And one of the best advice I got actually from an uncle of mine was like, show your personality. This is like, they're hiring you for you. You're doing your job. It's you. Like, don't be afraid of that. That doesn't mean like be ridiculous, but (laughs) (laughs) Uh, don't show everything. But um, I think it's important to like, remember that sense of self because you spend so much time at work that you're going to inevitably like, that's going to show up in some way and be, don't be afraid to take up that space. I think also uh, for women, especially uh, empowering other women in the room, I think very tactically in meetings Uh where you're in a room, gosh, there's been so many times where I'm in a room with like all men. So don't be afraid (laughs) if you're in that. There's all that imposter syndrome and there's all those things that are happening, but it's okay. You're supposed to be there. Remind it to yourself, say affirmations, you're there. But if there are other women in the room, they're they're more likely to be more quiet. And if you create a culture where you are directly asking, especially if you're in a leadership position, you're directly asking some of those uh, more timid, maybe or more quiet or more shy people in the room, like, what do you think? Or what are your thoughts on this? Or how would you approach this? And kind of try to suss out. It's a good way to encourage without being too um, intimidated, getting them past the point of being intimidated because <laughs> maybe they probably have thoughts but they're maybe too shy or too worried or too anxious to share it so you know staying creative in a creative industry it's really hard <laughs> so <laughs> what what do you do uh is there anything that you're passionate about you know anything outside of work for sure I spend my mornings reading I catch up with some like tech industry news, I I time box it so it's not too much of my day and I don't get overloaded. But I'll read that. I'll go for really long walks. I think for me, it's important to get outside and get out of my headspace, walks or runs or whatever I want. Um, I was, I always think about, I run for therapy. Like I run to get out of my head. I run to get out of my, my thoughts and I walk for sanity where if I'm frustrated or if I'm stuck in a project or something, I have a really amazing dog that definitely (laughs) loves walking. And so if I'm like stuck on chewing on something, I can just like grab him, leash him up and walk around the neighborhood that I live in. You know, these past two years have been difficult for a lot of people in a lot of different ways. Have your hobbies changed during this era, this COVID era? It's quieter, for sure. <laughs> I am alone a lot. <laughs> um, I do. I had. A, I was lucky enough, basically, to have friends that moved away early, like before COVID, before we were all shut down. So I was pretty used to doing virtual catch-ups, virtual happy hours, virtual wine ladies' nights. And I have a really supportive group that I've tried to cultivate over the years that are really important. And a lot of them aren't in even a lot of them aren't even in tech, but it's nice to get the other perspectives mm-hmm. across the across the way. And I, I read a lot. I signed up for a library card when I got here. Libraries are cool. <laughs> so, you know, but yeah, uh, and to be creative, I just like to, I mean, I think play is important. I think sketching or doodling or 
or learning something new. Um, At Shutterstock, we have like these LinkedIn learnings or we have some like facilitated skills lab basically things um, that are all free that I sometimes will do to kind of stimulate my brain or learn something new or different. I also go through like Women Who Code or IDOU or somewhere that has free courses or something that I can kind of keep up to date on. I think it's important to be to stay relevant in this space because it's constantly shifting. It's okay to not, it's a lot, <laughs> but yeah. some kind of pulse on it, I think is helpful in many ways. So lastly, what would be your go-to pro tip for anyone who's listening to us? I think for, for most women, I think, um, keeping track of what you have done. I do a weekly status update for myself. I just keep a running Google doc of what I've accomplished for the week. If someone has said something good to me, I'll screenshot it and save it. Mm -hmm. I think just keeping like a record to both remind yourself, but also share and show up with what you've done. Um, I think a lot of times I'm guilty of this. I don't represent every, all the work that I've done to people around me. I'm very like, I'm doing my job. Da, da, da. Um, but the, you should, you can share that. You should share that. My dad has this terrible saying and I love him and he's amazing, <laughs> but he's, he um, will sometimes say, well, what would a man do to like encourage me to speak up for myself a little bit more? And he knows it's bad and he knows it gets under my skin. So I think that's why he says it, but it's true. I mean, there's times where it's a good reminder, especially in like a tech culture where it's, yeah. you're, you're surrounded by some of that bro culture and some places are healthier than others. And it's important to be inclusive and there's all, there's so many good things, but that's always in the back of my head. So I think that's one and find things that spark joy in your day to day. You don't, it's a job. Like it doesn't, you don't have to love it all the time, but find little moments where you're finding something that gives you purpose or passion or drives you a little bit more. <laughs> That's really great to hear. Thank you so much, Crystal. And thank you for everyone who's listening. Is there anything else that you would like to share with us, Crystal? Have fun. Life short. <laughs> <laughs> Be thankful for things like this, be grateful. We have so many resources as women in this day and age that, uh, you know, people in generations before us didn't have. So lean into that. We've got your back. We're here. Thank you so much, Crystal. Thanks for having me. April is National Volunteer Month in the U.S. So in this week's Women Who Code Career Nav segment, we're going to highlight some of the volunteers that are at the heart of our community with a Women Who Code Asia Directors panel featuring Women Who Code Tap High Director Jane Shi, Women Who Code Tokyo Legacy Director Kate Gamo, Women Who Code Beijing Director Jinshi Young, Women Who Code Bangalore Director Shweta Laxma Rao, and Women Who Code Seoul Director Yinjong Chang. Moderated by Women Who Code Chief Program Officer, Shauna Gregory. Uh, my name's Shauna Gregory. I'm the Global Leadership Director for Women Who Code, which means Women Who Code is my full-time job. I'm joined here by five directors from different cities 
uh, who are volunteers for Women Who Code and do a lot for the community. So wanted to make sure we had the opportunity to hear about what they do in their day-to-day -day and what their communities are like. Um, so we can just start off by introducing yourself. Um, tell us where you came in from. I know we all have signs, but talk a little bit about um, yourself and, and what you do for your full-time role, what you're interested in. And then we'll talk about communities later. Jane, go ahead and start. My name is Jane Shi. I'm from Taipei. I have been a director for three years, and we just promoted two other directors this year. Joni and Angel, please, you know, just wave your hands. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so my full-time job is an entrepreneur. My company is called We Together. We build community for tech professionals, especially women in tech. So my daytime job is about women in tech. My nighttime job about volunteering is for women in tech. So that's, that's me. <laughs> Hello, everyone. I'm Shweta Lakshman Rao. I represent Bangalore chapter, India. And I have been uh, associated with Women Who Code for about four years now. And it has been a great journey so far. So if it comes to the passion or the things that I do beyond work is mostly figure out the opportunities for women in tech. Hi, everyone. I'm Kay from Tokyo, Japan. Uh, I, it's been, I've been involved uh, in Women Who Code Tokyo as a director since uh, September 2018. So it's been exactly one year. Amazing, amazing year. <laughs> And uh, I, uh, my full-time job is uh, Adobe Experience Manager Consultant. I know it's a kind of niche, but uh, it is like a inter uh, it's an Adobe's product, and it's an entrepreneur content management system. And uh, I do the customize, uh, so it's built in the Java. So I do the customize for the uh, client. That's my full-time job. Hi everyone, are you enjoying Connecting Asia so far? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm Yuzin. I'm from Seoul, South Net South Korea. And then uh, our network has been launched this year. So we're quite brand new network. Yeah, and then I yeah, thank you very much. And uh, I've joined the Women of Code uh, Seoul chapter as a director since March and preparing to launch it and then we're so excited to have more and more women in tech joining our community. And as uh, beside of that, for my full-time job, I'm doing a product marketing and working for a company called Noom and helping people to having a healthier life. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Yi Chun. Yeah. Uh, I come from Beijing, China, so so, um, yeah, my full-time job is uh, uh, I'm a senior software engineer manager. Yeah, I work in uh, from VMware. Yeah, that's all. Great. Thank you. Yeah, you can hold on to that. <laughs> Great. So we have a pretty good mix of uh, representing five different networks across Asia. You might see some photos in the background flashing through, trying to represent our other networks. Um, we're really, really excited to be in Singapore and also to bring leaders together from Manila and all over. I can't list them all right now, but we had um, a meeting yesterday with people from over 12 different countries, and we're really excited that so many of you are here. Um, so now that we've learned a little bit about what you do, it would be great to hear. Um, so one of the, the things that Women Code does is make sure that 
the world knows that tech is existing outside of San Francisco, outside of the United States, and outside of a lot of larger cities that people kind of think is the go-to for tech. Um, so I want to hear about the kind of the differences in all of your cities. Uh, it would be great to know what Women Who Code is like in each of your cities or what the tech industry feels like in where you live. So um, in Taiwan, uh, we are lucky tech is super hot in Taiwan. Um, software developers has in demand, you know, as a top five job demand uh, for over uh, for the past two years. And, um, you know, companies like Microsoft, Google, and AWS, you know, Amazon also set up AI research centers in Taiwan over, like, the past year. So, um, Women Who Code Taipei has been doing very well regarding training or providing opportunities for learning uh, for tech women and also for non-tech women. So, uh, we kind of, uh, you know, being approached by various companies in the past, usually the tech companies come to us or startups, but now financial companies or, you know, traditional industry companies, they wanted to collaborate with us and understand what, they, what we can do to help them to recruit more female engineers in their companies. So these are the things that we feel like, yeah, we are doing super well. We are proud of our community and efforts from all the leaders uh, in the community. At the same time, you know, for the not tech or tech tracks, we separate them into different, you know, expertise. So, for example, we are leading the efforts of, you know, um, introducing some exciting new programming languages or frameworks like Kotlin or Flutter. You know, we issue, uh, we created uh, Flutter Collabs and then led by Joanie, uh, you know, most of the time. We also, for non-tech women, you know, we want them to understand what's happening in blockchain industry. So we introduce a few panels for people introducing those careers in the blockchain. And at the same time, for non-tech women, we want them to understand it's important for coding education to be started early. So we have women join tech program there, and also wanted to highlight mid-layer, you know, mid-level career women to become the leaders in their companies. We also have a podcast called 2020 Women Lead Podcast. So there are many things, many programs in Taipei that wanted to facilitate or embrace the culture of uh, female engineers that you know should be in various companies in different layers. So that's, you know, how, what we're doing there. Um, as many of you know, India is a leading um, place where you can see many organizations have their uh, presence. So uh, especially with respect to the Women Who Code Bangalore chapter, we have grown from 500 to about 2,800 in last three years, and there has been a huge amount of uh, interest that has been built across. So uh, considering the kind of things that are happening, um, VMware came up with this uh, initiative called VM Inclusion Tara, and uh, they felt the need of women who code on how they can make a difference in the women community. The interesting part of this initiative is um, if you look women around you, especially about five to eight years of experience, they tend to take break and never return to work. The program is intended to help women to return back to work, and this program is in uh, VMware in association with Women Who Code, and the idea is to upskill women so that they return back to work successfully. And the good news is the very first participant who uh, completed this program and got hired was one of the member of Women Who Code Bangalore chapter. The I think this deserves an, a huge round of applause for all of you. Yeah.
so the idea is to educate and help women uh, in next two years for about 15,000 women. So far, we have already reached the mark of 3,000. So spread the word and create opportunities like this in your community so that you can have a bigger impact for the wider community. So tech in Tokyo, uh, I can say domestically, it's really dynamic. There are so many uh, the tech-like projects happening and lots of startups pops up. Uh, and uh, a lot of like the, the companies really aggressively hiring and there's so many demand of the engineers. But unfortunately, the percentage of the female engineers are quite uh, quite small. Uh, that because there is the culture backland, uh, because still Japan is very traditional, but women are discouraged to pursue your uh, career and to success in business and encouraged to be a good mom and to be a just housewife. So what we do uh, in, uh, as a Women of Fuku Tokyo is very important because we uh, offer uh, the lots of women to build their skills and to uh, train themselves to excel in the field. And uh, we also give uh, a lot of opportunities to the women to speak a public, public. Yeah, that's what we do. In Seoul, the tech community is growing fastly. And from the investment of the government, lots of startups is rising. And also the Google or Facebook, the big tech companies is coming to the Seoul and install their incubators and then uh, space for uh, helping them to helping people to uh, to have more resources on educations of the development and tech in general. So it's growing really fastly. And of course, there are lots of events uh, dedicated to women and also lots of conferences. And I would say the proportions of the women and female is growing as well uh, compared to the 10 years ago. If I would say if there is uh, one woman out of 10 and back in the 10 years ago, but now it, I would say maybe two or three. So it's growing rapidly. And uh, also uh, the company also encourages women to continue their career. And the society is also changing. As, uh, as Kate mentioned, uh, we're, uh, our society is quite traditional, but uh, the, the image is changing right now. So in Beijing, uh, yeah, the uh, competition is fierce. Uh, have has anyone know um, there's a, a popular open source project in GitHub named 996 ICU? <laughs> yeah, it means uh, refers to work uh, work, uh, work by 9 a.m. to uh, 9 p.m. six days a week. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, you you are sick in ICU, <laughs> so <laughs> so yeah, it's 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 an ironic saying among Chinese developers. <laughs> uh, yeah, if you work according to such uh, work schedule, yeah, you are risking yourself, right? You're risking your health. Uh, uh, so yeah, in other words, it says that um, yeah, the young young, especially the young. Young men or young ladies, uh, they are very, very work, working very hard. Yeah, uh, and uh, also uh, a lot of um, yeah local internet uh, companies, uh, they are grab talents, top talents. So, 
yeah, I think, um, yeah, uh, f it can say that the tech, yes, is, is, is the commission is very fierce, I think. That's great. Yeah, it sounds, I, I hear kind of a common thread of work-life balance and expectations being really high. Once you are in the industry, people are kind of expecting you to put many, many hours into your career. Um, and as you all know, you're all volunteers for Women Who Code, so you have that extra, um, that extra obligation that you've signed up for, and which we're very appreciative for. Um, I'd really love to hear about some of the different types of events that you host in your community. So for those of you who don't know, um, all of these uh, leaders host free technical events um, open to anyone in their community. And I think that's a really great way to bring people together to talk about these issues and to also hear each other um, and, and really excel. So Jane, would you like to talk about events in Taipei? I know you have an amazing podcast. <laughs> Um, so uh, we usually do uh, offline events, so you know, like meetups and everything. But there is also uh, higher and higher demands. Um, you know, people outside of Taipei wanted to know or learn from you know women who go Taipei. So we also do, and sometimes we do live streaming. You know, to teach uh, people, for example, very basic. You know. Um, uh, coding, uh, for example, the you utilize Scratch, you know, uh, or you know other things like Flutter. Yeah, so these are the things that we do, uh, you know, online and then you know offline events-wise, you know, like I just mentioned, you know, certain programs like certain programming languages study groups, like Flutter or you know uh, Kotlin or you know even there's uh, for mid-level uh, engineer managers to interact more to talk about their you know how their companies are doing. We also have a clean code study group. So uh, over the time that we have been heard, for example, uh, one of the uh, leadership team members, she actually started her first coding uh, class with us. It's called Hour of Code about three years ago. And she's now a data engineer and helping you know, generate events, creating those programs for data science. For non-technical women, uh, initially like her, she thought about creating machine learning crash course for non-tech. So we you know, recruited a few um, volunteers with the technical background in machine learning, and they create those courses over two days, you know, like workshops you know, for them. So these are the things that I feel like there is no best way um, of, you know, like there's really no better community than women who code Taipei or women who code because, you know, we grow women and the women come back to contribute. And that's the best thing about, you know, this oh, like sustainable community. Uh, for technical women-wise, you know, we encourage them to become the leaders or mentors of the community by, for example, being the speakers or being the, you know, interviewee at the podcast. So we are happy that this type of, you know, honors and that can pass over to them. At the same time, you know, Angel, um, she's here, is creating also a certain, um, you know, coding bootcamp for, um, you know, return to work, you know, the, the uh, career, um, certain women that they have to stop because they have child or they, you know, are married, which, you know, they probably won't need to move to a different city with the husband. Um, they wanted to relaunch their career in Taiwan. And then, you know, they are, there's demand there for a very long time. Um, so Angel is, you know, doing that type of, you know, uh, int uh, coding bootcamp, you know, to prepare that type of, you know, uh, support for those type of women. And then also, uh, there is also HR, you know, um, volunteers, they can help them to prepare their resumes and the, the interview skills too. So these are the things that we feel like, you know, as long as we have the, you know, community which wanted to create more events, 
And as long as those core volunteers are actually grow with us, there are always new ideas coming and they are able to generate those you know, programs for them. That's really great. It sounds like Taipei has been very, very busy, um, but also embracing that um, you build a really great community and people don't always stay in the same place. And it's great if they move to another city that has women who code physically, um, but we definitely acknowledge that there's a lot that we can be doing to serve people who are living outside of these major cities. So it sounds like uh, Jane and her team are really working on that. Shweta, what would you like to share yeah. about Bangalore and all of the things that you're doing? Yeah. Um, one of the interesting uh, things that we are doing in uh, uh, our network is Connect India um, from last three years, and the next one is going to happen in 2020 March. The dates are yet to be finalized, but if you are there, you have to check it out. So uh, this year, um, we expected like about 500 to turn out, and Usually in the meetups, we see that 45 to 50% is the turnout ratio. So just we opened it up and we had 1,000 plus registrations one week before uh, the event itself. And the actual turnout turned out to be 700 plus. And uh, it was a amazing session, especially with Shana and Amanda being there. Um, we had a couple of interesting sessions for both tech and non-tech uh, related areas. And we had uh, execs from different organizations who shared their inputs, and um, it had a great value add. So after the event, people wrote back to us saying that, can we have these speed mentoring sessions every quarter? Because we see the value add that it can bring to our career. Uh, along with these lines, we do Wednesday webinars, uh, which are most popular in our community. We do this in the lunchtime, one to two, so that uh, people actually find time to attend. Uh, it, it is not like you are at home and you will not be able to attend or you are stuck in another uh, regular deliverable. So that is another interesting thing that we work on. We also have uh, currently running a focus group of machine learning. And in September, we are going to launch uh, on containers and Kubernetes. Along with these things, one of the interesting things that we uh, ensure during our workshops is we try to keep our workshops for a smaller size of about 20 to 30 so that more individuals get attention. And we will not move forward until 95% of the participants complete that particular task. So people feel more value add to attend our events. And we ensure that we have more than four experts in that specific technology so that they go to each and every individual and check out how they completed whatever is the current task so that people feel more value add and they ensure that they attend the entire series of sessions. So one of the successful one was uh, we did on Python. And Ranjini Swaminathan, the city director of Women Who Code, uh, was part of it. And uh, people actually came back. Um, these days, what we are seeing is uh, execs of different organizations come back to us saying that, OK, we want to nominate these many people for these events that are currently happening. And we have POCs from different organizations. So they drop the note asking, like, when is the next event happening? We would like to send our members to attend and learn out of these. So these are a couple of amazing things that we are doing. And machine learning is being driven by Ramya and Ranjini, the city directors of Bangalore chapter.
Thank you, Shweta. I know that there's so many amazing things going on in Bangalore, and having the opportunity to visit for Connect India was really, really exciting. Um, it sounds like you're listening to your members a lot and taking feedback very seriously. One of the important things that I yes. missed out, we have started a new series called Grow 360 Degree. This is based on the feedback that we heard, because many people told that, uh, we appreciate the way you are helping us learn the technology, but there is something that is missing today, and we want to learn more about the leadership and the soft skills, which are very important for us to grow in the technical ladder as, as well as leadership ladder. So um, the best part is uh, people from women leaders from different organizations who are based out of uh, different countries across the globe write to us saying that we are visiting Bangalore during these days, do you like to host us? So that is the best part. And recently we hosted senior director of Intel, uh, Anu Sridhar, as a, as a leadership uh, panelist. And we had a fireside, fireside chat with her. Yeah. That's great. Um, Kate, would you like to talk about the great things that are happening in Tokyo? I, I know from watching all of the meetups that are happening, all the events that they're posting online, that you uh, are super inclusive of your community and you always post in English and Japanese. I know that that really helps open the door for people who are native to Japan, but also for people who are expats or, or foreigners who are in the tech community. So I'd love to hear more about that. Uh, so in Tokyo, we also organize a lot of technical uh, workshops, events, and the weekly study session for all level. But uh, we mostly like uh, really uh, in, uh, we we really organize lots of like mentorship writing talk event. Since there are the lacking of the role model of the women in tech, that's why like we really want to create a safe and comfortable community for women who can share their career uh, uh, difficulties and uh, uh, what the, if they are wondering uh, how they want to pursue their future career, uh, for, for like to answer those questions, I really, uh, I often organize the mentorship writing talks. And uh, uh, this year, I uh, give an opportunity. Uh, I organized three times mentorship writing talk, and uh, I invited uh, several levels of the the female uh, engineers and the product managers and the. Uh, and also CEOs to talk and share their difficulties and their uh, challenge in their career. That's great. Yes, I, I always love um, seeing the different types of events that are happening in, in Tokyo, and I feel like there's always a lot of excitement about the, the new types of events that you're posting. Yes. Um, and Seoul is one of our newest networks, and um, Eugen and her co-directors have done a really, really amazing job building the community. It's really hard to start a Women Who Code network in a new city, so a lot of, um, a lot of the directors up here have been doing this for many years, and Eugen and um, a couple of other folks started in Seoul, so I'd love to hear about how that's going so far. Yes, so uh, Sujin, Sure, there she is. <laughs> Sujin uh, is starting, uh, is, has started off the network last year, and then there are a bunch of people who are interested in how women can be more evolved in the society and can have more commitment. And so we are preparing, and then just starting as a casual meetup in the beginning. And then those bunch of people are bringing other people who are interested in how to uh, imp improve our ourselves in the tech scene 
and then how to improve my career, those people's questioning about <laughs> their life is generally uh, uh, sharing what they're thinking, think, think about uh, the, the technical things. And uh, we're just uh, uh, trying to making a conference casually in the beginning and then presenting us and then attending to that conference and then saying that we're trying to building a community and you can join to our Facebook group. So that's our beginning and uh, people, uh, we are just trying to attending and presenting ourselves for now. So we tried to attending as many as we can to the tech conferences happening in, in local communities or like PyCon or like now it's JS conferences coming up to the town next year. So like our directors and community volunteers are preparing about the being presented our network. So what we're currently trying a lot of efforts is being presented and we're here and you can join us when you would like to have more help from us. That's what our strategy currently <laughs> and, and growing and then trying to giving a regular talks and panels talks as well. And we have uh, study groups. Uh, uh, previously we have a 100 days of the coding study group and recently React and then uh, English uh, for the developers group is growing as well. So far, uh, that's all, and I'm expected to grow more. Thank you. Yeah, you're doing great already. Um, it sounds like a lot of you are working on um, more soft skills or, or less technical skills are also really important to complement all of your actual like React workshops, Python workshops. So that's great to hear. Um, Yichun, do you want to talk a little bit about Beijing and how you and others are planning events there? Uh, yeah, uh, uh, like uh, other directors, directors uh, said that um, there's a, a lot of technical uh, sharing uh, workshops. Um, but I think what's, uh, what, what I had in my mind is uh, those hard, uh, hard skills is uh, very important, but I think uh, the confidence in women herself is, is the most important. So I, uh, I think I think uh, I wish uh, women who code Beijing could be an ally for each lady who wants to excel in the technology career path. Uh, yeah, just stay uh, stay in the technology path and not go away, and uh, can cr create their uh, brilliance in their career and their life. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, so. In the uh, in the future events, I think uh, I will work with my, 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 my teammates. I think if we can create such sessions that inspire or uh, let uh, every women see themselves and uh, yeah, excel in their career path. That's great. Yes, it sounds like Beijing is really taking the Women Who Code mission to heart, which is to inspire women to excel in technology careers. And I, I hear a common theme of having women coming to these events and encouraging to stay, them to stay in the field. Um, because what's common in all of your cities and a lot of other ones around the world is women leaving the tech field after you know five to 10 years. And it's really hard to come back into the industry if you've had a break because things change so quickly. Um, technologies change so quickly. Um, if you're a front-end developer and you learned Angular and then you had 
you know, a child or had a family, <laughs> Angular is no longer popular. <laughs> so you need to learn React or you need to learn Vue or whatever the next new framework is. So um, all of the work that they're doing is helping people keep their skills updated and, and helping them um, really advance in their careers. Um, so we are almost out of time already, if you can believe it. Um, I would love to hear if you have two or three words that you think um, represent how you feel about your network or how you feel about the community. It doesn't have to be strictly, but just to keep it short, um, just a couple of words, you know, excited, enthusiastic. Uh, women who call for me and for our community is really a, re a representation of creating possibilities for your life. So we don't care about your age, your profession, your, you know, your background. Uh, we want you to be part of community and grow with us. That's great. Um, women Who Code has played a major role, especially in our community, because we see more people building the tech passion and also going and attending different conferences. So the basic thing that we try to uh, help with uh, these things is that we ensure that first of all get, creating the opportunities is important so we ask them to attend the conference. So we tie up with different conferences and uh, the organizers offer extend free passes which we give to them. That actually builds the confidence and then in the couple of months, they will come up and say that, hey, this time I want to present. So that is the change that we are seeing in the community. So I heard passion and confidence, opportunities. <laughs> to summarize Bangalore. Yeah. Yes, for Tokyo, if I pick the three words, uh, of course, inclusive first. We are really inclusive. We are open to all the levels and uh, all the background people. And the second, uh, let's say professional, we really uh, want uh, as many as women to pursue their success in their career. So yeah, I pick professional. And uh, lastly, let's say heartwarming. We are really like uh, kind to each other and to accept who they are and uh, we are creating that kind of community. That's great. Those are not words often associated with tech. Really so it's really great that you're building that in Tokyo. Eugene? So uh, I would like to emphasize that, again, the diversity and the, the inclusion is the most important uh, value from the Seoul's community. And I hope uh, people who would like to join or who, who get information from us feel feeling safe and feel free to improve themselves and, and, and continue to commit to the society. That's great. So, what else? <laughs> uh, sorry, you're last. <laughs> There's still lots of words. It's okay. Uh, yeah, um, I, I just hope that uh, more, and more, more and more women yeah, from local uh, Chinese internet, uh, internet company uh, would like to join. Um, I, I, I'm not sure if it's caused by the culture or uh, because most of our speaker or sharing come from um, those from foreign companies. So yeah, I wish uh, more, and more, more, more and more uh, national, local uh, <laughs> uh, guys can join and sharing. Yeah. yeah, it sounds like you want people from smaller companies and more local companies to attend your events. Um, well, thank you, everyone, for joining the panel. It was great to hear about all the... Yes.
great to hear about all of the exciting work that you're doing in your communities, and hopefully you've had a chance to work with each other over the last couple of days and learn about all of these things and continue to make Women Who Could great. Um, thank you. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Earth Day is this week, so let's get our green on in this week's Women Who Code Talks Tech segment about using coal to reduce greenhouse gases with Rose Fenwick, a data scientist at OMB EMEA. Enjoy! I'm Rose Fenwick. uh, I'm studying at the University of Leicester. I'm in my fourth year of my PhD, so I'm just about to start writing my thesis. Um, I'm studying machine learning for Earth observation and focusing on the retrieval of methane um, from satellite data. I'm studying under Professor Ivan Chukin and Professor Hartmut Bosch, um, who are in the maths department and the physics department, respectively. So I'll start by talking about the greenhouse effect, why it's important, some kind of misconceptions about it. Um, and then I'll talk a little bit about the satellite uh, that we use in the data. Uh, and then I'll talk some a little bit about the methodology, the neural network solution, uh, that kind of thing, and a few of the challenges that I've faced uh, throughout my project. And then finally, I'll present some of the results um, from the various steps that I've I've talked about. So first, the greenhouse effect. I think um, we all have heard of the greenhouse effect, but I'm not sure everyone really understands what it is and why it's why we're worried about it um, and what it is that we're worried about. So it's very a very uh, basic uh, explanation and um, what happens is that the sun sun's radiation comes towards the earth and the earth absorbs some of that energy some of it's reflected uh, back into the atmosphere um, but the earth absorbs the majority of it and uh, then earth, the earth kind of emits some heat back into space some of it just goes straight through the atmosphere no problems um, but greenhouse gases trap most of it which keeps the planet warm so in as an as a greenhouse as the greenhouse effect is it's nothing to worry about we need it without the greenhouse effect it would be like zero degrees fahrenheit or something on earth which i wouldn't want to live in um i don't know about you but um so the greenhouse effect itself isn't isn't anything to worry about the thing that we worry about is that the amount of greenhouse gases is increasing uh, and so the warming effect is increasing. So the worry is that the is the increase in the greenhouse effect rather than the greenhouse effect itself. But what are the greenhouse gases? So we've all heard about the uh, the famous one, carbon dioxide, um, which makes up 82% of greenhouse gas emissions, um, followed by 10% from methane, and then some small uh, smaller emissions from water vapor, nitrous oxide ozone and cfcs so yeah that's that's the picture of greenhouse gases so you might be wondering why i would focus on methane rather than carbon dioxide if carbon dioxide is the is the big one on that uh, pie chart so obviously we all know about carbon dioxide there's a lot of research in it um which is one of the reasons that I would focus on a, another gas. The other thing is that carbon dioxide has a much longer lifetime in the atmosphere. So it's hundreds of years compared to just kind of 12 and a half for methane, which means that you've got a kind of smaller window to deal with it. It also accounts for 20% of the global 
warming effect, even though it's only 10% of those greenhouse gas emissions. So it's far more potent than carbon dioxide. Um, so it's having a much stronger effect. And on top of that, 70% of it is anthropogenic, which means that it's man-made. So 70% of that methane comes from human activity, um, which means that it, human activity is, accounts for most of that 20% of the global warming effect. So where does methane come from? So it doesn't all come from cow farts. In fact, it's cow burps, not farts. So uh, correct all of your friends about that that misconception. Um, but most of the anthropogenic stuff comes from fossil fuel uh, production and use and agriculture. There's a little bit of biomass um, and bio biofuel burning as well, which is both natural and anthropogenic. And then naturally occurring through wetlands, um, inland waters, some vegetation and certain wild animals. There's cows. So uh, we also have a few sinks um, they're all natural sinks, so that's absorption of methane, so it doesn't get emitted. Um, but as you can see from this plot, a lot of it comes from people. So that's that's methane. That's why it's important, and that's why we we want to know more about it and work to uh, find the emissions globally. So the Sentinel Five precursor satellite uh, is is where I got all my data from. It's what I what I work with. Um, it was launched in, at the end of 2017. We don't have any data from it until I think April 2018. So there's a kind of six month um, validation window where they check out what's going going on, calibrate things, that kind of thing. So we've got, got a lot of data from April 2018 till probably April 2021. I haven't checked the most recent data. Um, on board that is the tropospheric monitoring instrument, which is what records all the information that we need. It orbits the Earth around 14 and a half times a day, which is, which is a lot and gives us near global coverage. So every day we're getting almost a complete picture uh, of the Earth. But that generates masses of data. I think it's about a terabyte a day of raw data. Obviously, that's processed and we lose some of it, but that's you know massive. Um, at the moment, they use a forward model to get methane from this data. Um, this uh, image here is the basic forward model as it's presented in the documentation. Um, as you can see, it's not that basic. There's quite a lot of ins and outs and little steps going on um, that all interrelate a little bit. They also have to do some processing and there's a little bit of extra inferred data included in there, which doesn't come from the satellite. Um, there's some steps to the calculations and then on top of this they bias correct the their results to um, get a more accurate picture there's a there's some ground monitoring systems which give us accurate methane uh, data which we can which they um, calibrate all the results from so that's that's the system um, which as you can see is a little bit convoluted and quite slow so Sometimes it can take months to get a methane concentration from data that went in a long time ago. Obviously, uh, any anyone can take the data and calculate the methane themselves following this process, but the official product isn't often released for for weeks, months um, after after the data is downloaded. So that's where where my project comes in and looking at a neural network solution. So 
why would we use machine learning and neural network solution in this for this problem? So firstly, we've got this massive amount of data. So we know that machine learning is something that is very good with dealing with large amounts of data. Um, we hope that by training a model using the bias corrected data, um, we can have the model, have the network infer the extra data that would have been put in that's done from calculations and also do the bias correction step as part of the network because it knows that the bias corrected data is its output. So um, that's a, a really great benefit. It takes away some of the steps. Um, it will be much faster in the long run. Um, and potentially if you could build a small enough network, you there's a potential for a low, low memory onboard solution. So you could put this uh, a Raspberry Pi or similar onto onto the satellite and it could potentially get us some uh, relatively accurate methane concentrations in near real time. Um, even if they weren't, you know, perfectly accurate, that's still a, it would still give us indications of increases in, and that kind of thing much quicker than, than we get now. So my methodology starts with standardizing the data, which is a really important step because in this case, I have uh, approximately 1800 features, which is massive. Most of those come from the spectral data that the satellite records. Um, but we also have latitude and longitude. There's a few things like solar zenith angle, which is to do with the angle of the sun, um, that kind of thing. And they're all on, on different scales. So you've got wavelength there, which is between 2,300 and 2,400 nanometers. Um, and then you've got latitude and longitude, which are kind of in the, in the low hundreds. So these, these different ranges uh, can, can cause the network some problems or add some steps to the network. So standardizing just brings everything to the same scale. And it means that you don't accidentally give more importance to one feature uh, over another just by the uh, fact that it's on a different scale. So the way we do that is we take each point and we subtract the mean of that feature and divide by the standard deviation of that feature. And that should put them onto um, closer scales. The next thing that I've implemented, although the results I'll show you later don't include this step because I haven't yet got final results from this, is uh, dimension reduction. So we can use principal component analysis to reduce our dimensions. So as I say, we have 1800 features, which is which is a lot of features. Um, and a lot of those might be quite closely linked. So what principal component analysis does is it takes our, our data, we give it, I give it quite a large sample of my data and it, it analyzes that and it creates a new uh, 1800 new features, each of which are linear combinations of the old features. So that means that in theory, a smaller number of these new features would explain the um, variation in the data as, as well or as close to as well as using all 1800 features, which means we can reduce the data right down without losing too much of the variation in the data itself. Uh, this means that we obviously are looking at a much smaller data set when, when I've, got, I've got millions of rows of data and then 1800 features or columns in my data set so by reducing that 1800 down we're, we're quite significantly reducing the data that we have to play with we could then 
train using these new principal components that is the step that i haven't yet done so the rest of I'll, I'll show you some of the results from my principal component analysis but the results that i'll share of my network don't include this step yet but i'm hoping that that will improve my results somewhat so the neural network itself that i have used and that i have trained on relatively successfully um used about uh, 400 and 30,000 data points in its training set. I have a lot more data than that now. At the time that I, I did this piece of work, I that was about all the data I had. I had a much smaller window of data. Um, I think it was about six months worth of data, whereas now I have more like two years. Um, and I'd filtered out a lot, a lot of things that I maybe don't filter anymore, but I'm now looking at kind of more like two, three million points. Um, my test set was a little bit smaller, so about 180,000 data points. My inputs included spectral data, which I'll talk about a little bit in a minute, um, and then a few satellite calibration um, bits of information, so solar zenith angle, and that kind of thing, which um, were found in the in the one or two other other similar pieces of work were found to improve the results um, significantly. So that's why I've included those. Um, the target for my network was the Esron bias corrected CH4 um, mixing ratio, which is the, the name of the concentration of methane in the atmosphere. Esron is, I believe, the uh, space agency in the Netherlands, um, but they, they provide this product. The network had two hidden layers, um, uh, each with 128 and 256 nodes. And I ran it over 2,500 epochs, um, which was quite a lot. And I haven't included a training curve in here. I perhaps should have, but but I could see from that that the training could have been continued further to potentially improve the results. Um, just quickly, before I move on to some of my results, I'll talk about some of the uh, issues and uh, challenges that I faced. Um, one of them being that, at least when I started four years ago, there wasn't within the Earth observation space. There's not not a lot of machine learning going on. They're, they're a bit skeptical of it. Um, they're interested in doing it, but they they're, they're skeptical. So there's not a lot of similar work going on. There's a, there's a little bit with carbon dioxide. Um, I could only only find one or two papers to, to kind of reference to. So a lot of what I've had to do has been almost completely from scratch because there's there's not really a precedent for it. Um, which is really interesting, but obviously means that I am starting from scratch and every every decision I have to have to think about. So the number of hidden nodes, um, hidden layers and nodes, I did lots of experimentation to get to get those different uh, hyperparameters set in the end. Um, also computationally, massive amount of data. Um, I use the HPC at the university, which is great, but that comes with its own challenges queuing queuing systems service days crashing at the weekend that kind of thing so um yeah it hasn't been without challenges but but this is this is where where we're at so i'll uh go through some results now i'll start by um showing you what the data i have looks like um this is the coverage we get so uh, there are some missing points. Part of that is to do with the data that I had available at the time. So the interesting points t tend to be the more extreme values, um, the, the darker orange and red points, uh, because, they're, because they're the extremes, 
they're the they're the interesting points. That's where we might have plumes of methane or uh, larger larger emissions for various reasons. Um, but they're the interesting points. So it is important that those points in particular are predicted well because that's what the focus of the scientist is. You know, if it's if it's in the normal range, we don't really need to do that much. Whereas the scientists want to know the extreme places. So this is the spectrum, and this is the this represents the majority of my uh, input data. I don't uh, I don't um, input it as a as a spectrum, but this is this is what it would look like plotted. So on the, on the left we have the standard spectrum. That's what we that's almost completely raw from the satellite. Um, for one point, I uh, it's a good point. I filtered out all the bad points, so so there is some filtering, but and a little bit of processing, but. Essentially, that's that's what the satellite gives us that spectrum. Um, on the right, I have the log of the spe spectrum, which is what uh, I will be using going forward as an input to my network. The results that you see today use the left-hand side, but on the right-hand side, we'll be using the log of the spectrum because the relationship between the radiance and methane concentration is um, closer to a log relationship than a linear relationship. So it just makes sense. And I'll be doing some experiments to check that that is the case. But you can see that we we can we can still see the, the pattern. It looks very similar um, left and right. They're just um, some of the uh, troughs are slightly elongated and the peaks are that large peak is squished a little bit. But it shouldn't have a major effect, I hope. So let's talk about the PCA. So before I show you the results that I have, I will discuss the principal component and analysis and the results from that. So as I said, we started with 1800 features. We then got our new 1800 new features with um, the linear relationships of or linear combinations of the others. Um, here I've plotted 45, I think, maybe 46. Um, because then it just becomes a flat line of 1800 and you lose that kind of information at the beginning of this plot. So what we can see from this is that just one principal component explains the variation uh, of the data or 52% of the variation in the data. Um, interestingly, that, that principal component is a linear combination of all of the inputs except for a lot of the spectral data. I think only one or two spectral points were included in that. Um, which is interesting because it means that you can get a lot of the um, a lot of the variance in the data comes from that point. Um, it's important to note that variation in the variance in the data refers to the input data and not the methane. So it doesn't necessarily mean that that's it, that first principal component will be 52% accurate or anything like that. Just that the variation in that input data is explained or 52% of it is explained by that first principal component. We then go up to three principal components and we get 98.91% um, of the variance, which is which is pretty good. It should be enough. Um, on, on most occasions, that would be enough of the variance. Um, and I'll be doing some experiments in the coming weeks and months to look at whether the difference between three, 10, 20, and that 38, where you get to 99.95% of the variance, which is as much as you can explain with um, the linear combination. Um, we're, yeah, I'm gonna do some experiments to see whether increasing the number of principal components used in training, what, what effect that has. Um, 
and how how many we actually want to use on the math side we think three will be enough on the physics side they think we should be looking at more like 40 so that would be an interesting uh, discussion to have when we have some more results around that so then let's have a look at those first three so on the left you can see just the first two principal components plotted uh, together and um, with the color bar being methane um, so you can see the higher values of methane in the darker red and the lower values in the darker blue and the kind of uh, lighter blue and the lighter red or orange are the, those middle values. So on the left, you can see that there is a there is a pattern. It's not it's not a clear separation of the higher and the lower values, but it's not completely random, which means that there is some correlation between the two principal components, the first two principal components and the methane concentration. It's not necessarily causation. Then this doesn't say absolutely the network will be able to work it out, but it's an indication that there is a correlation and, and therefore we might be able to see some better results. Um, and then when we look over at three principal components, it's it's hard to say at this angle, and I didn't twist it around. Um, Maybe I should have done. Maybe we would have been able to see it clearer from another angle. But to me, it looks like we've got layers now. So the, the darker reds on the bottom and the darker blue looks like it might be on the top. Um, it's important to also remember that the um, concentration of those darker blue points and the darker red points is much lower than the middle points will be. So you wouldn't necessarily expect a dark blue stripe or bunch. Um, but yeah, th this means again that three principal components there is, a, there is a correlation between the three principal components and methane concentration, which is which is great news for me. Um, and hopefully that will mean that when I do some training on this uh, new data, transform data set that I have, I'll get better results or at least quicker results. So we'll see. So then let's have a look at the results of the actual network, the one I described uh, previously. So on the, at the top, kind of towards the left, we've got our actual data, the figure we saw earlier, and uh, bottom right, we can see what the network predicted. It's pretty good, but when you look at it by eye, uh, there aren't many points that are um, different. In America, it's blurring together a bit. Uh, North America, it's blurring together a bit um, in the predicted, whereas there's some kind of cleaner, cleaner darker points um, in the actual. That, that's kind of um, clear all over the place. If you find the, the darker red points and then you look at them on the predicted, again, they're, they're there, but they tend to be a bit um, softer and not, not quite so prominent. So that, I mean, as a, as a, as a um, baseline, this is, this is a good result. We've got our um, training error of 15.97 root mean squared error. Um, and our validation of 16.23. So all of those three sets give us a 0.73% error, which sounds really good. You think 0.73%, that's that's tiny. But unfortunately, in the Earth observation or Earth observation scientists tell me that if you um, if you have enough information and you are an expert in that area, you can by location and time of year and a few other little bits, you can kind of guess to within about 10 to 15 parts per billion. So on that basis, 15 isn't isn't amazing. It's very good. And in certain in certain parts of the globe, we look at um, 
much smaller errors like 0.1 0.01 even in certain points like australia is pretty good um and then in other parts we have more like two three four five percent error so it's not quite as black and white as 0.73 so there is some work to be done particularly on those extreme areas um so then just another example of how we look at these results um this is a density plot this shows us we've got our actual um methane or retrieved methane along the bottom on the x-axis and then are predicted on the y-axis um this is ideally you would just have a nice red line or red red mostly a red line with a little bit of a blue halo along that straight line in the middle um the red shows us that there's a lot of points of a lot of data in that that area and the darker blue is where you've got a bit a bit of or less data so obviously ideally we want that nice red in the middle where most of our data is and then the blue still within that line um it's it's not bad um the shapes there it's it's this kind of left hand side of the plot that is worrying i would say or the worry or the improvements that need to be made where we have um the network is clearly not predicting things below really 1,700, uh, yeah, 1,750. Um, you don't see much of the network going below there, whereas we can see that there are there is data in that area. So that low extreme, the network's not predicting particularly well. And again, it is getting some of the higher points, but uh, there are some higher points that have made their way over to the right. So the extremes are the problem. Um, in terms of the real extremes, the lower extremes are the problem in terms of the majority of the extremes you can see that this higher below the line at the top we've got quite a lot of bunched up data so there was there are some improvements to be made at the extremes there's also some improvement to be made in that middle bit where you can see a slight singularity where it's a bit green between the red which is something that needs investigating so i need to investigate whether that is to do with the fact that there's not that much data there to have a high concentration or whether as it looks like because you've got that kind of fanned out line there um there's something going on at the 1850 mark that it's not predicting so well um so yeah those are the those are the results and um we're relatively pleased my next steps will be to look at uh a potentially a regression tree which would pull out some of these extreme points and build networks individually for those extreme points. So the majority of the data does well with this, and then some of the data would be pushed off to um, other networks. Um, that would involve some classification probably, or k-means to get some clusters, which I've loosely started working on, but um, don't have any strong results to share at the moment. Um, and and then potentially some error correction techniques that I've started to look into would be another another way to go. Um, that's my last slide. I'll just quickly mention the technology things that I use. So most of my work was done using Python and I use Keras and TensorFlow for the uh, machine learning things. I use a little bit of Jupyter Notebook and Atom for the coding itself. Um, I think that's it. Thank you 
for listening to the Women Who Code podcast. To find out more about our mission and the work we do across the tech industry, visit our website, womenwhocode.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Women Who Code. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel with hundreds of hours of free educational videos. Just go to youtube.com backslash women who code. Thanks again for listening and remember to subscribe, rate, and comment.